6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his introduction of this exciting study through the whole Bible. If you take a course in navigation, part of that course will include some elements of spherical trigonometry in which you can have 90 degrees in each of the angles. In fact, you can also, if you encounter a triangle that has less than 180 degrees, you've encountered a hyperbolic paraboloid. Now, most of us aren't going to be concerned with that, but the point is, these little rules are true of a universe of only two dimensions. That's why they call it plane trigonometry, or plane geometry. Well, it was those kinds of insights that gave Dr. Einstein his insight when he was gra uh, grappling with the nature of space. His special theory of 1905 dealt with the relativity of mass, velocity, and time relative to the velocity of an observer. That's the special theory of relativity. But that led, 10 years later, to his general theory, the general theory of relativity by Dr. Einstein. And we won't get into the math, of course, but it's important for each of us to understand the significance of Dr. Einstein's theory of relativity is that there's no distinction between time and space. That we don't live in three dimensions, we live in at least four. One of those is time. We call it the theory of relativity, but it's been confirmed over 14 different ways to 19 decimal places. So for practical purposes, it's, it's well established. But we need to understand the nature of time because it will undergird so much of what we're going to encounter as we get into our Bible studies. Let me give you another example. There are atomic clocks that are accurate to better than one second in a million years. There's one of these located at the National Institute of Standards and Technology at Boulder, Colorado. There's an identical clock, virtually identical clock, at the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, England. Both these are very elaborate scientific devices that are incredibly accurate. They're accurate to better than one second per million years. I'm always reminded, whenever I encounter this, when I was on the board of a company that was acquiring a company that made cesium clocks in Boston, when we were in this acquisition, the proud president was presenting to our board the uh, fact that they made these clocks that are this accurate, and I, I said, I only have two questions as a, an acquiring director. Uh, how do you know, <laughs> and who cares? Well, the way you know is from the resonance of the cesium atom, and I won't go into that all here, but as who cares, the accuracy of your measurement of time determines the accuracy of your navigation. And these clocks, this kind of clock, makes the global positioning satellite system possible. But the point is, these two super clocks in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and at Greenwich, England, uh, are th differing every year by five microseconds. The one at Boulder is five microseconds a year faster than the identical clock at Greenwich. The question is, which one is correct? And the answer is, they both are. The clocks are not inaccurate. Time is different. You see, in Boulder, Colorado, is at 5,400 feet altitude above sea level. In Greenwich, England, it's 80 foot above sea level. And time is actually different 
at those two uh, places because of a difference in gravity, among other things. These atomic clocks, if I had an atomic clock here on the platform and raised it one meter, it would speed up by one part in 10 to the 16th. In other words, 10 with 16 zeros after it. Not much, not enough to change your schedule, but it's predictable and it is measurable. And they actually did this. They sent aircraft around the world, eastward, with such a clock and one at rest at the observatory. They also set one around the world westward. And they gained and lost exactly what Einstein's theory would have predicted due to the relative motions and so forth. But another example that perhaps will get this across, if you read a physics textbook in this area, you'll, they almost always talk about two hypothetical astronauts. And uh, we're going to leave one right here and we're going to send the other one to the nearest star. If you go out to the night sky, there is a star called Alpha Centauri. It's four and a half light years away, light years of measurement of distance. And we're going to send one of these imaginary astronauts to Alpha Centauri and back. Well, Alpha Centauri is four and a half light years away. So if we send him there at half the speed of light, it'll take nine years to get there and nine years to come back. It's an 18-year deal. That's on Earth time. If he takes a clock with him, he'll discover something strange. On his clock, his clock, because of the uh, uh, travel and so forth, will speed at a different uh, at rate. And since he's traveling at uh, uh, 50% of the speed of light, you can apply the Lorentz transformations to make that correction, and you'll discover that when he gets back, he will end up being two years, five months younger than his twin brother. Here are two astronauts born at the same instant. One goes on this trip, and when he gets back, he'll be more than two years younger than his twin brother. And if that doesn't bother you, you weren't listening carefully. This is an example of what we call the dilation of time. Time is a physical property. It varies just as length, mass, and other things vary uh, due to Einstein's theory of relativity. And so let's to dramatize this further. Suppose we could send him, assume we could send him at almost the speed of light, say 99.99% speed of light. Four and a half light year trip, round trip would be nine years on our clock. On his clock, it would be 33 days. So that gives you a feeling for, uh, it should help you understand that time is not an absolute, it's variable, it's, a, it's not uniform. Time is a physical property. It varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity, among other things. And this is an insight that is profoundly useful as we approach some of the subjects we're going to talk about in this study. You and I, we now know, exist in more than three. In fact, the experts tell us we live in ten dimensions, more than three. See, all of us think of time as being linear. When we were in school, the teacher went to the blackboard and wrote a line, starting at the left and going over to the right. The left end of the line was the birth of a famous person, the founding of an empire, what have you, and the right end of that line would be the death of that person or the fall of that empire. All of us have made timelines in school. Well, because of that background, it's natural for us when we encounter the concept of eternity, we tend to jump to the conclusion that it's sort of like a line that starts at infinity on the left and goes to infinity on the right. In other words, we think of eternity as having lots of time. Well, that's good poetry. It makes a nice verse in Amazing Grace, the fourth verse and what have you. But it's uh, bad physics. Because, let me ask you a question. 
Is God subject to the restrictions of mass or acceleration or gravity? Hardly. He is not simply somebody with lots of time, as we tend to imagine eternity, but he's rather outside dimensionality of time altogether. And that is his uniqueness, and he uses that to authenticate his messages to you. That's what Isaiah means when he says, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Now, since God has the technology to create us, he certainly has the technology to get a message to us. The challenge is, how does he authenticate his message? How does he let us know that the message is really from him and not some kind of contrivance or a fraud of some kind? Well, one of the ways he authenticates it, there's several ways. One of the ways, he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. In other words, he writes history before it happens. We call that prophecy. Many people ask me, Chuck, what do you, what's your profession? I say, I'm a history teacher. I teach history in advance. And of course, I'm being a, a, only a little bit facetious there. The geometry of turning, if I take this line that we have on the screen here, and if I bring it out to you in three dimensions, imagine this curved line is coming out at you from the screen. It's a line. And we are at a point in this line that we'll call the present. Behind us is the past, ahead of us is the future. For us, life is a sequence of events. For someone who is outside the dimension of that linear length of time, say in eternity, that person that's outside that line can see the past, the present, and the future simultaneously. Let me give you an analogy. Suppose you're watching a parade, the Rose Parade, the first of the year or whatever your hometown might have. For you, as you're sitting on the curb, around the corner comes the marching units, the bands, the floats, the whatevers. For you, the parade is a sequence. They come around the corner, they go by you, and they go around the next corner. So that's like life is. It's a sequence. But for someone who's not in the plane of that parade's existence, say, in a helicopter above the parade, they can see the staging area where all the floats are get, getting prepared, ready to start. They can see the whole parade route, and they can also see the other end where they disband. They can see the beginning and the end simultaneously. A clumsy analogy, but it gets the idea across, I think. My favorite quote from Dr. Einstein says, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between the past, the present, and the future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. And indeed it is. So the point I want to get across with all this is important for you to really understand that the, the nature of time, it's a physical dimension, and it varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity. There's a footnote I'd like to add here a little bit about some architecture. I'm obviously using a computer here that consists of microcircuits and a memory and all kinds of hardwire, wires and resistors and all kinds of, uh, of electronic parts. It also, inside the computer, is software. There's an operating system, there's all kinds of languages and messages going around and so forth. If you knew everything there is to know about every piece of hardware in this computer, could you predict its behavior? And the answer, of course not. It's, just, it's simply an environment 
within which the software operates. Its behavior, how it responds to things, is a function of the software that's in it. Now let's talk a little bit about software. You see, the physical equipment is equivalent to like our physical bodies, our flesh, bones, our circulatory systems, and all of that. But that's all what I'll call hardware. Our real self, call it soul, spirit, mind, thoughts, whatever, we use those words pretty loosely. As I look out at the audience here, my frustration is I can't really see you. It's not because the lights are so bright. I can't see you because I, I can only see the temporary residences that you're in. The real you, as I say, call it soul, spirit, whatever, that's vocabulary, is software, not hardware. Now here's the point. Let's talk a little bit about software. If I take a little diskette, you all have seen one of these little diskettes in our current computer age. If I take a blank cassette and put it on a postal scale, it will weigh about seven-tenths of an ounce. But if I load that blank cassette, I spent over, I've spent hundreds of dollars and load it with a million bytes of software, and then put it on that postal scale, what will it weigh? Seven-tenths of an ounce. In other words, software has no mass. A light switch weighs the same whether it's on or off. It carries one bit of information. But a, a computer registers the same thing. The, the, the information it doesn't have weight. It has no mass. In fact, I can even send it through the airwaves. The big thing today is wireless because these, th these messages do not require embodiment. They can exist on their own right. So software has no mass. Now what does that mean? If, if time is a physical property and software has no mass, it has no time dimension. What that really means is the real you, the real you is eternal. Whether you are saved or not, the, the issue is where are you going to spend it? I want to talk also a little bit more about hyperspaces. That's just a fancy word mathematicians use for spaces of more than three dimensions. Most of us have been brought up in school with what we call Euclidean geometry. But one of the most important lectures in mathematics was given on June 10th of 1854 when George Riemann invented a thing called metric tensors. It took 60 years for, until Einstein could use that mathematics to develop his four-dimensional space-time that underlies the theory of relativity. Einstein went to his death frustrated because he couldn't resolve some other issues which if he'd gone to one another level up they would have yielded and Kaluza and Klein did that in 1953 by using more than four dimensions and reconciled light and supergravity in the field of physics and in 1963 Yang and Mills another duo resolved electromagnetic and both the nuclear both the weak and strong nuclear forces by recognizing the additional dimensions and since about 1984 onwards, people in this, that, that deal in these things are now exploring the, the apparent uh, reality of superstrings. That we now live, we begin to understand we live in ten dimensions. I always find that rather interesting because there's an ancient Hebrew sage by the name of Nachmanides who wrote in the 12th century. Nachmanides by simply studying the Hebrew text of Genesis chapter 1, concluded that the universe has ten dimensions. 
in his vocabulary, only four were knowable. The other six were, in his terms, not knowable. I find that rather interesting because we've spent millions of dollars on atomic accelerators that have caused particle physicists to conclude that we live in ten dimensions. Four are directly measurable, the three spatial dimensions we know in time. Six are curled in less than ten to the minus thirty-three centimeters and thus are inferable by only indirect means. And I think that's fascinating that the leading frontier of quantum physics is now caught up to where Nachmanides was in the twelfth century. There are only two kinds of people that seem to be able to deal comfortably with hyperspaces, uh, spaces of more than three dimensions. And that's mathematicians with special training and small children. If I was going to try to communicate to you aspects of four-dimensional or five-dimensional space, we'd both be having a tough time because outside our direct experience. But we can get some feeling for hyperspaces by going down a dimension. Let's, as three-dimensional people, let's examine a two-dimensional universe with two-dimensional people living in it. I want to introduce you to two friends of mine, Mr. and Mrs. Flat. I want you to be kind and compassionate here because they have a very serious handicap. Mr. and Mrs. Flat live in a two-dimensional world. We are three-dimensional beings. I want you to notice some of the advantages that we have over Mr. and Mrs. Flat. First of all, we can, no matter where Mr. and Mrs. Flat are within their two-dimensional universe, we can be more intimate with both of them simultaneously than they can be with each other. I could put my finger in theory one millionth of an inch away from Mr. Flat and one millionth of an inch from Mrs. Flat, no matter where they are, I can have intimacy with both independent of their spatial relationships because I enjoy that extra dimension. Furthermore, if I should thrust my finger through their two-dimensional universe, the only thing that they would be sensitive to, they would see what? Not my finger. They would see a ring. They would see a circle. They would see uh, a two-dimensional representation of this three-dimensional person that's intruded into the universe. If a sphere tumbles through the universe, they would see it as a point that would expand to a circle and then shrink to a point as it disappears. So we begin to realize that the communication of a three-dimensional object to the two-dimensional people has some challenges. How would we go about that? How would you communicate a three-dimensional object to these two-dimensional people? By a two-dimensional projection is one suggestion. So we could try to project, say, a three-dimensional cube to get it into two dimensions to help them understand it. That would be probably less than satisfactory. How would we see a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional hypercube? There are such things, and you can go on the internet and see them and play with them, but the more you play with them, the more you realize there's no way you'll understand them from a three-dimensional vantage point without special tools. It's not very useful. Another way you might unravel a three-dimensional object into two dimensions to communicate to Mr. and Mrs. Flat would be to unravel it. We take our three-dimensional cube and flatten it, and that would be one way. But again, it wouldn't be too useful. That's actually been done with a four-dimensional cube. A four-dimensional cube that's unraveled into three dimensions is called a tesseract or a Hinton cube. There's only one place I've ever encountered it as being useful, and came in, I found it in a very surprising place. 
Salvador Dali uses a hypercube in his famous painting, Corpus Christi. I was actually astounded to discover that Salvador Dali was that sophisticated mathematically to really understand the implications of a four-dimensional cube in a three-dimensional space, but uh, we'll move on here. Oh, before we do, Ephesians. I have to call your attention to Paul's writing in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. A familiar passage, but I want to notice something. I want you to notice something. How many dimensions is Paul talking about? With all saints, what is the breadth and length and depth and height? In the Greek, one of those terms is the term for time, by the way. We've got four dimensions here. Four dimensions in the text. I think that's fascinating. I'm not necessarily insisting that was Paul's intention, but I'm fascinated the Holy Spirit in guiding him kept him physically on his toes. We find examples of that all through the Scripture in some ways that will surprise you. When I first, I should mention something, when I first visited Israel, I remember a rabbi pointing out to me, he says, we, we really won't understand the text until the Messiah comes, but when the Messiah comes, he will interpret the passages, in fact, he'll interpret the very words, the very letters. In fact, he'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. And when I first heard that, I dismissed that as a colorful exaggeration. Until I read, once again, Matthew 5, verse 17 18, where Jesus himself says, Think not that I come to destroy the Torah, or the law, or the prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yacht or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A yacht or a tittle. See, a yacht is one of the 22 Hebrew letters that you and I would mistake for an apostrophe. It looks like a little blemish on the paper, just a little mark. A tittle is the little decorative hook on some of the letters. This is a Hebraic way of saying, as we might say, not the crossing of the T or the dotting of an I. When I realize the implication of this, it's a call by the Lord Himself to take the text seriously. Not one yard or one tittle shall pass from the law. I take this as a call to taking the text literally. And uh, now that leads to another area that I want to just touch on because it will give us, we're not going to try to get into too much detail here, but I want you to have a respect for some of these topics that are in themselves perhaps pretty controversial. Are there hidden messages in the Bible? Well, the Bible says there are. In Proverbs 25, 2, it says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, and it's the duty or honor of kings to search out a matter. Rabbi Cordovero in the 16th century records that the secrets of the Torah, that's the Hebrew term for the five books of Moses, are revealed in the skipping of letters. There are lots of hidden messages in the Scriptures, but we're going to just focus on one called the equidistant letter sequence. What on earth is an equidistant letter sequence? Well, let me give you a contrived example here to get the idea across. Rips is one of the scientists in this area, by the way. But anyway, Rips explained that each code is a case of adding every fourth letter to form a word. 
Now, in this particular contrived example, if you take every fourth letter, an R, an E, an A, a D, a T, H, E, C, O, D, E, it spells a message itself. It says, read the code. Now, in this case, it's just a simple contrivance, but to get across the idea that you can have a message embedded in another message that is hidden. It has to be found by knowing what spacing to use and so forth. Now with a computer that's easily, you can try all spacing to see if there's a message there to see if something's going and that's exactly what they've done. I want to share with you a discovery, or I should say a rediscovery, by Rabbi Weismandel, who was between World War I and World War II. He made some discoveries in his study of the Hebrew text which is a rediscovery of things that the ancient rabbis knew long before. He, was, he noticed some footnotes and some ancient documents he looked at, chased them down, and discovered something interesting. This is the book of Genesis, the opening passages of the Bible. Now realize that the Hebrew goes from right to left. We would look at it as going backwards. You should understand that all languages flow towards Jerusalem. Countries that are west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Greek, English, German, Russian, whatever. Countries that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left. Hebrew, Arabic, Sanskrit, and others. But the main point is, uh, I don't know what you do with that piece of information, I just throw out because I think it's colorful. But the word for Torah, the Torah, the law, in Hebrew it's four letters. One letter, it's, equi it's equivalent to our T-O-R-H. If you go to the first how, which is like their T, and then count 49 letters, you come to a Vav, which operates sort of like an O, and then you count 49 letters, and you, again, you get a Resh, and then you count 49 letters, again, and you get a He. That's a Tau, Vav, Resh, and He which is equivalent to our spelling it T-O-R-H, that English transliteration of that would be Torah. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.